Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Happy 2019 to all our listeners and indeed to all readers of Rocks Back Pages, the online library of music journalism. I'm here as ever with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. Hello, Mark. Today we're going to be talking about everything that's new on Rocks Back Pages, including Bross, Kenny Rogers, and the late Anthony O'Grady, the father of Australian rock journalism. But we're going to start with Bross. I don't think I ever imagined, Mark, you and I would be talking about Bross, but they're sort of all the rage uh, once but, again. Well, well, I mean, you know, this documentary, When the Screaming Stops, is uh, put out on the BBC over Christmas, and it has become the talking point of the Christmas period. And it's the best Christmas TV I've ever seen in my life. They basically come out appallingly out of it. <laughs> it's, it's basically they're getting together to do a show at the, the O2 and a subsequent tour. And it's about their re- the rehearsal period. These are two brothers who've been estranged for some years, probably a couple of decades now. Well, they, yeah, they really don't come out of it very well, particularly Matt, who is just a grotesque parody of an overweening ego. Um, uh, a lot of people say they both come out of it badly. I have a certain sympathy with Luke because... Frankly, Matt's bullying him at times. I mean, if ever in the rehearsal room, Luke makes a suggestion from behind his drum kit, Matt just slaps him down. They have some stand-up rows. It's just too funny. A lot of people pulled quotes out online. It's one of, mostly, again, this kind of goes along with what I'm saying, is that, that Matt's the guy who really comes out of his worst. He says, The letters H-O-M-E are so important because they personify the word home. <laughs> I mean, um, epitome, not, that's the way he pronounces it, epitome, which I believe is Latin for abstract. <laughs> and there's the great classic, I made a conscious decision because of Stevie Wonder not to be superstitious. And it goes on, I mean, Matt shows uh, the, the camera crew around the inside of his home, which I believe is in Las Vegas, but actually could be a gangster's pad in Essex. Mm. It's got all the aesthetic charm of that. Ah. And it's got crystals everywhere. It's got a painting of his bulldog. This is one of the loves of my life. This is my best friend Alfie, my bulldog. I didn't paint it holding a pint of beer. I mean, <laughs> uh, and it sort of goes on, goes on like that. This is my cave area. I have crystals everywhere. Love a bit of chess, have a few glasses of scotch, have a long game of chess. But someone pointed out all the chess pieces are in the wrong place. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, look, it begs the question, is is this actually... Uh, a very knowing kind of yeah, spinal yeah, yeah, tap Yeah, I mean, I mean um, uh, our, um, our friend and Rock's Back Pages contributor Simon Price suggested precisely that on Facebook the other day. I don't think that, that even though Matt has earned a living as an actor, I don't think they're capable of sustaining such convincing performances of being utter tools. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, 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 I just don't see it. Well, do you know what? I think you could be right, and I'll tell you why, Mark, because... This week's Free on RBP feature <laughs> takes us back to the very dawn of the Bross story. And, of course, the pieces are replete with quotes that suggest that they were really just as dim <laughs> <laughs> in 1988 as they, as they are now. Uh, so we have, of all people, the great David Toot profiling Bross. Uh, this is um, a, this it, is unlikely. David Toop's been an avant-garde musician, an experimental uh, musician, and so an so. outsider <laughs> kind of artist. Um, the face sent him to uh, the Goss 
de household <laughs> in, in Peckham where Mum Carol is holding court and screaming girls are outside on yeah, the street. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just a sort of brilliant profile of these two brothers. And at that point, of course, Craig Logan, the forgotten. Yeah, who, who, who is, isn't even mentioned in this programme. There's no sign of it. It could well be because maybe they asked him to participate and he said, the last thing I'm going to do in my life is participate in any mm. broth reunion. Yes, yes, yes. So it's, it's a marvellous sort of snapshot. Of, I mean, I think When Will I Be Famous had only just... Uh, you know, storms the top of the charts. Yeah. And, I mean, to me, we were talking about this the other day, what a sort of critical moment that was in the sort of birth of celebrity culture. Because really. yes. it was such a sort of naked statement. When will I be famous? Not when will I make a good record? You know, not, not when will I do something sort of worthwhile in music? <laughs> when will I be famous? And I always think that it all started there, really. This craving... Yeah. Uh, yep. for for fame for celebrity i mean to me they were pretty worthless i you know of course matt goss could could vaguely sing in a kind of cod michael jackson where everything is it's like a sort of very unconvincing collision yes. between michael jackson and stock ake yes. and waterman well me. you know he made a conscious decision because of stevie wonder not to be superstitious mm. so. <laughs> there you um, go i, I mean stock ake and waterman is interesting because it, it, they are part of that whole the new british pop of the late 80s which is the beginning i mean we've always had manufactured bands in pop. Yeah. They've, they've always existed but it was when that sort of exploded where it was producer-led music where the artists had virtually in fact you could say it's a return to the late 50s and very very pre-Larry Parnes era absolutely yes well and talking of Larry Parnes the second piece in the Bros feature is Tom Hibbert the great Tom Hibbert the hilarious Tom Hibbert Profiling them on the road in America in November 1989. So they're trying to crack America and kind of (laughs) failing abjectly. But rather in the spirit of the documentary, as you describe it, they have this sort of argument in front of Tom about Mm. Tom Watkins. I mean, it's kind of like, oh, everyone thinks Tom Watkins sort of shaped our image and told us to cut our hair and everything. And and sort of Luke goes, well, he did. And he's no, he didn't. Well, don't say this in front of the journalist. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's it's really embarrassing. And there's just terrific quotes like uh, Luke saying, deep down, I'm a hippie. I love the idea of love and happiness for everyone. And we can spread that to our fans. We have an incredible responsibility towards our fans. It may sound corny, but we're like God. <laughs> and then Matt says, and then Matt says, um, and they talk about hubris. It's such a sort of study in hubris. They compare us to Wham, the Bay City Rose and the Beatles. And if they want to compare us to three bands that actually made history, that's fine. But my level of history making will go into a further level. <laughs> I mean, Derek Small's eat your heart. Well, well, out, the, really. the other thing is this programme is almost achieved that. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I confess I've not seen it yet, but oh, you, uh, I have you, to. No, you've got to, uh, any one of you who have access to the BBC iPlayer, it's, it's on there probably for another month or so. And it, it is just, just extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's just brilliant. So. Brilliant. Brilliant. So how we segue from Bross to Kenny Rogers... With great difficulty. With, with grace and ease, I don't know, but that, that was the segue. Yeah, Kenny Rogers is our audio interview, uh, interviewed by the wonderful John Toddler in, eight, we think, 89. And he's just releasing a greatest hits album where they've re-recorded virtually half the greatest hits. Yes. Because the 
original masters were owned by other record companies and so on and so forth. One of the interesting things in the piece is that he talks about that, because Tobler sort of says, well, you know, I always kind of prefer the original versions. And Kenny Rogers says, yeah, I see what you mean, I kind of get that, you know. But, you know, it's, they sound so much better re-recorded. Yeah. Well, he concedes, doesn't he, in yeah. the audio, that the original recordings have more heart. Yes, he does. He, he, does. Um, he talks about his une- uneasy place in country music, which is actually a very legitimate point, because he sold to the country audience without ever really being specifically a country musician. Some of his songs smacked of country. Well, he had such a diverse yes. career, didn't yeah. he? I mean, there was a folk period. And, of course, as we're going to hear from the clip that yeah. you've chosen, I mean, his real roots were in, were in R&B. Yeah. And he talks about the coasters. He talks about Clyde McFatter. Uh, absolutely. And Ray so Charles. And Ray Charles. Um, he, he also says that he never liked rock and roll, never liked Elvis, never liked Chuck Berry. His, his roots were in kind of uptown urban R&B of the late, sort of the late 50s, as you say. So let's run that clip now. You've painted up your lips and rolled and curled your tinted hair. I grew up, as far as my, my, my teenage youth, I was listening to R&B doo-wop groups like the Coasters and the Platters, and I've started doing... I've been searching. I've started doing that in the show. The people love it, you know? <laughs> but I've got a whole new version of it. I mean, it's a very hip contemporary version of the Coasters record. Yeah. But I grew up with Sam Cooke and Ray Charles and Clyde McFadder and the Drifters. And at the same time, there was another element of rock and roll, which was Elvis and Jerry Lee. And I did not was not listening to those guys. I was never... And I met Elvis and we became relative friends. Certainly, no, we didn't hang out. But he knew me and I knew him. But I was never a big Elvis fan. And mm. I was never... You know, Jerry Lee... I mean, I certainly have respect for what they accomplished, but my heart is with R&B music. Yes. My heart is really with the, the, the Drifters and Sam Cooke, you know, Absolutely. and Ray Charles. Don't take your love to town. He, he also talks very amusingly about the uh, UK Country Music Festival he played once, and Mervyn Kahn. I'd never knew this, but John Tobler asked the question. You can always hear John Tobler raising an eyebrow while asking it, because it appears that Mervyn Kahn had a habit of not paying his artists. And Kenny says that uh, he went up to Mervyn and said, don't pay me, pay everyone else, I'm fine. He was the only one to get paid. <laughs> well, some, um, some, some justice. There. Yeah. Um, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting interview. I mean, he, actually, the other thing I think which is really good in it is he talks about he did have a reputation as a songwriter. He wrote some very good songs. And Tobler says, you know, why don't you write so much anymore? And he says, well, you know, your records aren't necessarily better for them being all your own songs, that, that he'd rather have three of his songs, which are songs that he really mm-hmm. liked, with seven cover versions than make the whole album his own material. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really legitimate. I think the, the idea of being an interpreter is rather sort of you know, post-Beatles, went out of fashion, the mm-hmm. idea that you could be really great as an interpreter of other people's material. Sure. And I, I like the fact that you know, Willie Nelson's a case in point of someone who started off primarily as a songwriter for other people, for Farron Young and people like that. But um, what, once he had sort of written his best stuff, Willis felt no great desire to write anymore and, yeah. is, and it has become one of the great interpreters of American yeah. song. So, so anyway... I mean, look, Kenny Rogers in many ways is the ultimate sort of M.O.R. 
uh, American MOR artist, isn't he? Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's not someone with some kind of cult uh, rock following, but he is he's an interesting. He's guy. Kind of he comes across quite personally yeah. in this interview. And you know, as a footnote in his story and and in the, the story of soul music, his brother Leland had a, a a bunch of labels in Texas. They're both from Texas, and I'm believe that it was Kenny who took the great Betty Levette right. to to his brother Leland, uh, who signed Betty. I think uh, Kenny heard Betty Levette singing in a club in Houston. Mm-hmm. And out of that came some terrific singles yeah. on the, the Silver Fox label. So, you know, we have Kenny to thank for, for, for Betty Levette, arguably. Uh, um, I, and there's another footnote. I owned a, a, a Kenny Rogers branded Western belt that I bought from a Western <laughs> store in Sheffield, Alabama in 1987. It's ah! <laughs> fantastic. It, it was a very fine item. <laughs> Do you want to play anything else? Well, I thought, I, th- I thought we'd, at, the end of the, at the end of the show, we'll run him talking um, interestingly about Karen Carpenter. Karen Carpenter, who, who I think would audition for the new Christy yeah, Mansfield. We didn't mention that Kenny was in the new Christy Mansfield. New Christy Mansfield then formed, with some members of the, of the Christy Mansfield, he formed uh, Kenny edition. Rogers in the first edition. Yeah. I think they even, they even talk about a sort of psychedelic moment yeah. in Kenny's <laughs> career, don't ah. they? Um, uh, and Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Time is just one of the great songs. I mean, as as a kid, I just adored it. But, sure, you know. and even the schlocky stuff like I don't Lucille. Know, Lucille. Ugh. I mean, I don't know. It, <laughs> it, it sort of is in its cringe, cringeworthy way. It's effective, but so so. Do, that's, you, do, do, do you think he voted for Trump? <laughs> well, I sort of, I, I sort of, this awful theory that that any of these sort of beloved American entertainers, particularly Southern, you know, who might have been fairly right on, and for example, like black music back yeah. in the day, now, now they're just sort of gun-toting <laughs> evangelists, <laughs> Republicans, and Trump supporters. I, I do hope that, that Kenny isn't. The other sort of free stuff on the homepage this week is by and about uh, the late Anthony O'Grady, who. Uh, Many would call the father of Australian music journalism. Mm-hmm. He started RAM magazine in 1975, stood for Rock Australia magazine. And in the very first issue, he's writing about ACDC and others. So yeah. he sort of, I think, put Australian rock on the map in a way and, and, and brought in a bunch of very good writers. Clinton Walker, who's one of the, the best Australian rock writers, and we have him on Rock's Back Pages, has written a little tribute to Anthony explaining his significance. And then we have an ACDC piece. We also have uh, a more kind of backward-looking piece from 2007 by Anthony about Radio Birdman, who I was a big fan of. I mean, there were a bunch of Australian bands that took Detroit as their kind of departure point, and Radio Birdman was one of those. What what was your gateway drug for this? Was it the Saints, or would it have been... It was the Saints, really. It was the Saints. I came to Birdman via the Saints. I don't think Nick Cave was certainly not a fan of Radio Birdman, but they had their moments. They yeah. were, they were, they had this sort of slightly kind of sinister, fascistic imagery, sort of kind of cod blue oyster yeah. cult kind of style. But Dennis Tech was an interesting, uh, an interesting songwriter and guitar player. You know, a couple of decent sure. albums. There. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the, the kind of certain period of ACDC. I think they're one of the Absolutely. greatest hard rock bands anywhere in the world. And Anthony writes about them as, he calls them street 
punks. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is interesting. 75, he's talking about them as street punks. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, they came here around about the time punk was, was really sort of bobbling up. Absolutely. And, they, and they, they made a real split. They sort of played the Marquee and the yeah. Nashville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. clubs yeah. here in London. And so young guys who really weren't, going to yeah. kind of embrace punk, yeah. loved ACDC. But, but I mean, also the, the Australian scene in those days was pubs. That What Australians call pubs, which are actually what we call like a mm. beer hall, but yeah. much bigger institutions, uh, were the only venues rock and roll bands could play, and they were really tough places to play. Yeah. And so... The, it created a culture of really tough bands that could could you know oh, they, could they keep a tough. crowd of drunks sort of entertained. Rough as houses, rough as, as houses, as someone put it. Um, before we move on to the new stuff in the library, Mark, I just want to note en passant mm-hmm. the passing also of a, a, another great writer, really um, important writer, David Kavanagh, who we lost over Christmas. Yeah. Still don't quite know the circumstances of his passing. We briefly had him on Rock's Back Pages. Anyone who knew Dave or have, as he was known, um, on you know, Select, Q, yeah. Mojo, other magazines. We'll, we'll, we'll say two things. He was possibly the best British music writer of his, of his generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, Irish, as, actually, as he, as, as he was. But also that he was quite a, a, a cantankerous and difficult cove. And that was our experience, because yes, we I, had I, stuff by him, and then he would occasionally get in touch and say, take it off, yes. in a rather abrupt manner. Yeah. And in the end, we, 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 had to, we had to say goodbye to yeah. Kavanagh yeah. on, on Rock's Back Pages. And it was a great shame to me. I just want to say, as a sort of, as a, as a, as a sort of um, addendum to that, that we were able last year to include his wonderful obituary for Walter Becker in the mm. US edition of our Steely Dan book, uh, Major Dude. So there's a, there's a, that's a terrific kind yeah. of PS it, in it, the book. Relating to what you're saying, that, that when he died, obviously, I, you know, I, I'm Facebook friends with a lot of our writers. Mm. And the, the general thing was, great writer, but no one really knew him. No. You, you know, that no one was able to claim they were a great friend of his. He, he was pretty impenetrable, solitary yeah. guy. I mean, and the few conversations I had with Kavanagh over the years, you know, he was he was hard to access. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, he wasn't a barrel of laughs. Yeah. But, but he was a brilliant was, writer. Yeah. I mean, a huge creation biography that he uh, wrote, massive study of creation records, yeah. and, of course, his John Peel book. Yeah. But actually, his, his writing, and, and Q are publishing the very last piece, that he wrote, which is a profile of the former choral singer Bill Ryder Jones, and and it's as as elegant and beautifully written yeah. as anything Dave ever wrote. Yeah. So in memoriam, David Cabana yeah. and Anthony O'Grady, and um, sad way to start the year. But we're going to hand over to you now, Mark, and you're going to tell us what's what's going into the library. Into the, shall we say the slightly attenuated library? This being the holiday period, we the skeleton were, service. The skeleton we provide at this time of year. Um, you're lucky to get anything. Um, it, 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 it's just a slightly shorter list than usual. I'm starting in '72. Paul McCartney. Well, Wings, Andrew Bailey on Wings. And this is very early days of Wings, 72. It's pretty much their first tour, I think. It was the first time I'd gone out on the road. And there was a lot of controversy about the qualities or otherwise of Linda, Linda Eastman, Linda McCartney, um, uh, playing keyboards and singing on stage. Denny Lane says, We'll dig Linda. I like her as a person. I understand her quite a lot. As a matter of fact, she reminds me of John Lennon in a way, just in the way she feels about things. She's very truthful. I think she's contributing a lot to Paul's talents, especially in the studio, because she's more relaxed than when we're playing in public. Paul McCartney is his usual offhand self. I'm not afraid of the British press. I like the British press. They're darlings. (laughs) 
It's it's just a snapshot of, of that band. Uh, yeah. uh, and all the slight prickliness, you know, a Beatle with his new band. Yeah. Um, expectations, etc. Et sure. Second piece, uh, 75, a fabulous Brian Case interview with Elvin Jones, the marvellous jazz drummer mm. Elvin Jones for the NME. And he just writes, this is paragraph, down at Ronnie's, it's Ronnie Scott's where Elvin was playing that week, down at Ronnie's, his drum figures quake and break like crestless waves, boil in a loose limber flux. His right hand fences at his rivet symbol like Fairbanks Senior holding the drawbridge against a regiment. Mm-hmm. Tigerish. Elvin works his kit from a Joe Frazier crouch, thick-set, powerful, a cheroot clamped between his teeth. I mean, Brian, yeah. I've, I've spoken before Brian about is. Brian Case. It's just fantastic. But also, Elvin, in the interview itself, Elvin Jones comes over marvellously. He's really engaged. Um, there's probably a bit of weed being smoked down in the basement dressing room at Ronnie Scott's. I suspect. Great. Drink or two. 78, uh, Colin from Melody Maker, Colin Irwin interviewing Dolly Parton. Now, it's a very interesting interview. Slightly unfortunately, Colin chose to transcribe Dolly's Southern Vowels, uh, which makes it quite a hard read. Right. So it's like, I'm, I've got a new audience, as well as my country audience, except for a few bitter people. I guess I pissed them off, and they pissed me off. You know, and, and the thing is, reading chunks of text written in that way is actually quite hard work. But it's a very interesting, very interesting period of Dolly Parton. She's just about... Well, she started but hadn't finished the album she did with Emmy Lou Harris and Linda Ronstadt. She's really breaking out of her strict country thing, whilst, you know, and, you know, it's a great, great songwriter. It's, it's, it's a good, good instrument. It's an interesting and problematic thing that I think probably a lot of us have been guilty of, including me, because I've written a lot about yeah. Southern music. And... You know, there is always that kind of temptation because the sound of the sort of southern yes. dialects is so irresistible. You want to try and translate that onto the page. Yeah. I think it's probably okay with the odd kind of sentence or phrase, yeah. but when it's the entire interview... It's, um, it's it kind of hard probably work. probably is. It's also slightly disrespectful, well, I think. Uh, yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, because well, we all true. speak in different ways and it, nobody transcribes... It's a bit like poking an animal through the cages of a yeah. zoo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, did, uh, I think it is, it is, it is sort of something Patronizing. Yeah. Okay, 1984. Chris Robertson sounds on Morgan Khan's Street Sounds label uh, and Electro. Now, Electro was essentially a branch of hip hop to all intents and purposes. You could say coming out of Africa, Bambata, and so on and so forth. Morgan Khan says basically it's synthesized, wholly electronic, very percussive, high energy music with certain up tempo beat and the right dance quality. In their own way, people like Kraftwerk have been doing it for years, but when records like Tyrone Branson's The Smurf and Play At Your Own Risk by Planet Patrol come along, no one could believe what they were hearing. I mean, it's interesting about Electro, but Electro is a sort of footnote in kind of hip-hop history. I find it more interesting about Morgan Khan. He's a really interesting, very complicated man. He's an Anglo-Asian mm. who set up the Street Sounds label basically to kind of release American 12-inch singles on compilation albums. That was the main function of it. And they were stupendously successful. They were a way for English kids, black, white, Asian English kids, to get records that they wouldn't be able to afford to buy on 12-inch import. And it was at a time when English dance music was on the verge of a huge change. It was coming out of the Northern Soul thing and then the disco thing. Yes. And... In a way, it pointed towards house music in, in, in certain respects. The irony is his company went bust in 1988 because they had a magazine which cost far too much money and actually pulled the whole company down just at a time when, if he had managed to hold it together, 
he could have really made a, done well out of the house music boom. Right. I've talked to people about Morgan Connors. He's a very he was a difficult man to deal mm. with. Okay. Uh, he didn't necessarily pay work very well and things like that. Mm. Uh, he was very Thatcherite at the time. He's, he's regularly quoted as saying Margaret Thatcher is the best thing that's happened to this country and all that. But he, I think that he's an overlooked hero of British club culture. Sure. Yeah. He also put out an, an enormous Philly box. Yes, that's right. Which I think I was sent to or had to review at the NME, so it was rather great. I still have that. It's, it weighs a ton. And yeah. It's kind of pretty much everything ever released on yeah. Philadelphia International. Yeah. I mean, probably what he was doing at the time is that Philadelphia International probably just about gone gone to pieces by that time and he could pick up stuff cheap mm. but he was very good at that he was very good at kind of rinsing catalogues so sure moving on to 88 Sean O'Hagan this is this is 16th of July 88 now that would have been the peak of the second summer smack of love. dab in the middle of the second summer absolutely and, and it's basically about ecstasy uh, it's also about some of the DJs and so on and so forth and he talks to a club girl called Pam you know, can you describe the effect stage by stage People have likened it to everything from smack to mescaline. Well, I've never tried either of those, but he's kind of dreamy, friendly. It begins with a rush, sometimes a little scary and nauseating, but that passes and you start to feel really relaxed and animated. People say it gets rid of your inhibitions, and I must admit I've had a few wild nights. Mostly, though, it's good for dancing and getting on with other people. It's a friendly drug. It's a very interesting piece. It's a, it's a snapshot of, of, yeah. uh, of that moment in time. Moving on, 94... Blur, but Caroline Sullivan and The Guardian. Um, Blur, after a sort of series of false starts, had finally really cracked it. Uh, Part Life had come out, and suddenly they had become the most interesting thing around. Um, she says, Melody Maker used to run a regular comic feature that depicted Blur singer Damon Albarn as a highbrow fop who constantly got the group into scrapes by picking fights with lorry drivers. Hilarious, but plainly fictitious. Or not. Albarn chatting in his record company office. I know our references are a bit predictable. Joan Littlewood in the theatre workshop, Kurt Vile. He speaks in the wary Eastheats drawl that even Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys has never quite got the hang of. It's easy to imagine getting resoundingly up the noses of drivers, dockers and anybody bigger than him. It's a great piece. Great, Mark. Well, thank you. Um, and just bringing things slightly more up to date over the last of ten or so years... Well, it comes 15, 20 years Good now, grief. isn't it? Because we are almost into the 2020s. But there's a live review of Arcade Fire at King's College, London, 2005. Francis Morgan from uh, Plan B magazine, mm -hmm. Everett Trues magazine. And it's a, it's a great piece that really captures how exciting and different they were. I'm a, essentially a fan of Arcade Fire, not everything, but... Uh, the Suburbs is really one of my favourite albums of all time now, I would say. And I think they they were very dramatic and powerful when when they kind of launched with the Funeral album, that, that song Rebellion Lies, number two. So she talks about, about what they were like to see at that early stage before mm -hmm. they became huge. Um, David Hepworth's obituary of uh, Whitney Houston. Oh, yeah. Um, poignant and really gets the heart of of the mystery of how she unraveled so spectacularly. Mick Houghton on a cult hero, Mickey Newbury, great American Southern songwriter, singer-songwriter, mm -hmm. wrote American Trilogy for Elvis. That's a really nice piece. Um, and, and last but not least, 
Our quote of the week on the homepage is from Ed Harcourt. He's just released a new album, but this is 2016. And he's talking... Uh, Trump isn't even elected president yet, but he's, he's talking in the wake of Brexit. And uh, he says that in Britain, America, there's been a silent, dormant, slightly racist majority. And someone has come along and awakened the Kraken. Ha! <laughs> uh, so, Ouch. yeah. Yeah, uh, you know politically contentious, uh, perhaps, of us to put that on the homepage. But there we go. It's a point of view. And so much has happened since uh, he said those words in 2016. It's always quite interesting, actually, to look into, into the very recent past yeah. and, and, and hear what people were saying in that year. Yeah. So I think that's us. Yeah. Uh, that's us done. You know, again, Happy New Year to everyone. Happy we'll be- New Year, everyone. Be back next week with you know you a, said a next, fuller service. You almost said next year, didn't no, you? No, I didn't. I didn't. You <laughs> the, might have said the next that. podcast will be in January twenty twenty. <laughs> yes, um, but we will be be back next week, yep. and we'll be talking at length about what's new on Rockback Pages then. Yes. So thanks for listening, and we'll sign off with uh, Kenny Rogers talking about Karen Carpenter. Bye. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in? The next question is asked about Karen Carpenter. Yeah. Now, Pete Henderson used to tour with the Carpenters. Uh-huh. But uh, did she seriously, uh, she auditioned for the new Christie Minstrels? That's what I understood. But Karen, as great as she sang, had a very passive personality. And that's not wrong, it's just it was wrong for the Christies. They need all-American bubbly spirit and get out there and green, green, it's green, they say. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Karen was much more of a purist. You know, mm. She really enjoyed doing exactly what she and Richard did, which was sing these quiet, pretty ballads. And even though she was a drummer, she really preferred to, you know, to do yeah. ballads, and she did them well. Yeah. Yeah. Kenny Rogers in conversation with John Tobler, bringing this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast to an end. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. <laughs>